0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue exploring Romans chapter 3 in Dr. Newfeld's series entitled The Heart of the Gospel. Today's study, A Lesson We Must Learn, discusses what we can learn from Israel's history in the Old Testament and how it applies to our own walk of faith. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3 verses 19 to 20 as we go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: My wife is a wound care and ostomy technician. That means that she deals with the kinds of wounds that are difficult to heal. I'm actually quite proud of the work she does, but I must confess something. I never want to see pictures of wounds, and I don't want her to describe her day in too much detail. Neither do I actually have even the slightest desire to follow her around in her job. Let's just say I'm a tad sensitive about raw, open, infected wounds. So here's the question. Do I even know what my wife does? Well, yes, I do theoretically, but no, definitely not experientially. I think we all know there's a world of difference between theory and reality. There's a difference between attending a a lecture on love and seeing it demonstrated in the interaction between a man and his wife. There's a difference between sitting in a class on how to safely use a motor vehicle and actually getting behind the wheel and driving yourself. There's a difference between learning about the value of prayer and being mentored in prayer by someone who prays well. There's a difference between theory and practice, and theory remains, well, just theory until we see it in real life. Let me tell you a little secret. God has taken all the lessons on faith and obedience and righteousness and holiness and moved it out of the classroom and demonstrated it in real life. He did it in a history of a people stretching over a period of 2,000 years. He did it in the unique history of Israel. Let me read Romans three nineteen to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Let me try to rephrase this passage in my own words. The glory and the tragedy, which is the history of Israel, is a lesson book to the world. If you learn what happened to her— It'll kind of put a cork in your mouth. It'll stop you from talking. It will leave you with a sense of amazement. Israel's history will fill you with an overwhelming sense of your own accountability to God. Israel is God's living historical lesson book, a lesson which is recorded for the benefit of the nations. Now, I've chosen to take one entire broadcast trying to explain this concept, and you'll understand why in a moment, but let's clear out the rubble at first. Let's consider why Christians should consider the Old Testament so valuable. See, part of the problem that many of us have is in the title Old Testament. The idea of old seems synonymous with the word outdated. Outdated. So, for instance, if you have an old car as opposed to a new car, you'll know that the technology and the performance and the safety of your new car far exceeds your old. Same is true of an old computer, an old fridge, or an old anything. When the new comes, the old is outdated. Old is always seen as inferior. I think that exactly describes how so many Christians think about the Old Testament. So, let me briefly come to the defense of the first 39 books of our Bible— First of all, nowhere does the Bible refer to the first 39 books as the Old Testament. So if you had asked Peter or Matthew or James or John or Paul about the Old Testament and the New Testament, well, I don't think they'd known what you were talking about. So for them, they were simply the Scriptures of God. To assign some of the Scriptures as obsolete would have raised their eyebrows, and they would have wondered where such a horrible notion comes from. They responded by saying that every word from God is altogether enduring. 1 Peter 1, 24-25 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In other words, over time, everything gradually diminishes and falls into disuse except any word that was spoken by God. For us to say that any word from God is no longer valid is to assign to God himself the idea of change and decay. God never says something that doesn't endure. So, if you read a newspaper, a book, or a blog from yesterday, in our world, we consider that to be up-to-date, more so than something written, let's say, 20 years ago. But when God spoke something 3,500 years ago, it was it's just as contemporary and relevant as if he spoke it five minutes ago. The Word of God is unlike every other word. It is altogether enduring. See, the title Old Testament And by the way, I think we're stuck with that title now, so that's how I'm going to speak of the first 39 books. It was first used by the theologian by the name of Origen, and he lived in the mid-200s. And I actually think Origen had all sorts of theological problems, but really that's another matter. Suffice it to say that before that, Christians never spoke of the first 39 books as Old Testament. So let's commit to saying that the first 39 books of the Bible do not represent something that no longer applies. God's speech is not of that kind. Well, a New Testament, and this is the next thing to say, the New Testament regards the Old Testament as authoritative. When Peter, Matthew, James, John, Paul preached in their day, the New Testament had not yet been written, and so they preached Christ from the Old Testament. All the New Testament preachers were, in fact, what? Old Testament preachers. Yes, they were eyewitnesses to Christ. And more so, as the book of Hebrews declares, that God spoke in times past through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. What Hebrews means to say is that all the previous revelation was building up to a climax. Climax, that's the revelation of Jesus. And finally, we come to the point when we encounter Jesus that we see what everything was leading up to. But this is the point. Imagine reading a novel. And instead of reading the entire novel, you only read that part of the story that reaches the high point or the climax. And here's what I'm betting happens. You won't understand the climax of the novel until you read the whole thing. You may not know this, but there are actually 695 quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament, which works out to be more than two and a half Old Testament quotations on average for every New Testament chapter. I mean, did you hear that? Maybe you haven't noticed that when you've read the New Testament. What does that mean? Well, rightly understood, the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. I hope you get that. Now, It's quite a commentary, to be sure. For one thing, it's a perfect commentary. There are no mistakes. You can count on the truth of all that it says. But also, please notice that the New Testament announces that the Old Testament Messiah has come, and now that he's come... Well, now you're finally in a position to understand what the Old Testament was about in the first place. Jesus shows us what the Old Testament actually means, whereas before we might have been confused. That's why we should never say, aha, that's that's just the Old Testament, as if by saying that we can discount the importance of the first 39 books of the sacred revelation given to us in the Bible. No, no, it's the altogether enduring Word of God. So that's why we should never view the Old Testament as something that's passe. You can't understand Christ without it. Now let's get back to Romans 3.19. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. So let me say this. Some things in the Old Testament are specifically intended for the unique experience of Israel. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis 17, God is giving Abraham a very specific command. He tells Abraham he is making an everlasting covenant between him and his offspring after him. Every male who is eight days old shall be circumcised. Is that for everyone? No, it's for the Jewish people. In the book of Exodus, after a dramatic night when the angel of death kills all the firstborn in Egypt, Israel is commanded to keep the Passover as a memorial meal throughout their generation as a statute forever. You'll find this in Exodus 12, verse 14. And speaking about the sacred feasts, well, the Old Testament records seven of them, starting with a weekly feast of Sabbath, and then the six yearly feasts, which included Passover, the feast of first fruits, the feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement, the feast of booths. Israel was commanded to keep all of these. Are these for everyone, for the Gentiles as well? Answer, no, they're not. Uh, But we're not done. There are the commands regarding the five different kinds of offerings that are to be brought before the Lord. And then there are the rules of purification and rules regarding how a person becomes both ceremonially defiled and then to be cleansed. And then there are the rules of land management. And there's a whole host of other rules as well. And they seem to us to be incidental rules like not being permitted to wear two different kinds of cloths in a garment, like rules regarding what may or may not be eaten, rules around what you might touch and what you're not allowed to touch. I mean, it's, it's a large list of rules. And are they for everyone? And the answer is, well, no, they're not. But, says Paul, if you pay attention to this stuff, you will learn a lesson so profound, it will be so overwhelming, it will utterly leave you speechless. You know, when we come back, we're actually going to learn something that should leave us speechless. It'll be so large that you'll say, I have absolutely nothing to say but to drink this in. Wow, that's quite a promise. And when I come back, I hope to fulfill that. What you'll learn will leave your mouth dropping wide open and say, oh God, you are so great.
0: Well, there's an intriguing introduction, which will take us back to examining both the significance and the relevance of the Old Testament. How many times do we consider the Old Testament as irrelevant, boring, or even dismiss it altogether? Yet, as we've just learned, we cannot understand Christ without it, period. But what is the deeply profound thing we have yet to learn if we pay attention to it? Well, Dr. Newfeld will unpack this critical lesson right after the break. Thanks again for listening today. You know, as you may have heard, back to the Bible, Canada will be heading to the Eastern Caribbean for our second annual cruise on March 22nd to the 29th with Dr. John Newfeld and Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway. These seven days aboard the cruise are sure to leave you smiling, refreshed, inspired, and renewed in your walk with Christ. If you haven't made plans to join us, then do so today. Please visit our website for more information at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's return to Romans with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: Some Christians have a great deal of trouble separating out what in the Old Testament is meant only for the chosen people and what's meant for everyone. But that's why the New Testament is given. You don't have to be circumcised, but you better not worship idols. That's for everyone. You don't have to keep the dietary laws, but you're not free to steal your neighbor's property. That's for everyone. And someone's going to ask, well, how do I keep that stuff separate? Well, that's why God has given you the New Testament, the perfect commentary on the Old Testament. It will tell you what God requires of all of us, and it will help us to see those things that were intended only for Israel's history. But now lean in and listen Even those things that are uniquely given to Israel should be things of great interest to all of us. See, God directed Israel's unique history as a lesson book for the entire world. The things done in the Old Testament are intended for everyone, regardless of language, culture, or time period. Now, what are those things? What is it we learn? Let's let Paul himself give us the answer. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Let's start with the easy part of that sentence. The Old Testament teaches that through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Let me tell you a funny story I heard some years ago. Uh, Chuck Swindoll told it. A certain man had been fighting with his wife for three days and finally decided to make up. He called her at work. She worked in a motel. And when the phone was answered, it was the maid. And without giving his name, for everyone already knew his voice, he simply said, Is my wife there? I want to talk to her. And the maid said, You can't talk to her. She said, If you called, not to disturb her. And the man felt his dander rise. So he said, Well, why not? Why can't I talk to her right now? And the maid told him that, that she was up in one of the rooms with her boyfriend. Well, the man exploded. He told the maid to get a shotgun and shoot them both dead. And so the maid laid down the phone, and the man heard two shotgun blasts through the phone. And the maid came back to the phone and said, Well, they're both dead. What do you want me to do with the bodies? And the man said, Throw them into the pool, and I'll clean them up later. And the maid said, "But well, we don't have a pool. And the man stopped, and he hesitated. and he finally said, Ah, is this 555-6399? <laughs> See, here's the point of that silly story. Before I came to Christ, I thought all of my mistakes or my sins were mistakes. I got the number wrong, I goofed. It ultimately isn't my fault. If I had gotten the details right, I wouldn't have, well, you fill in the blank. But here's the reality of the law. It highlights our sin by naming it. Before the law came, I might have said, I made a mistake, or I didn't mean anything by it, or it was just a one night stand, or I cheated on my spouse. You see the names I give for my behavior? Not meaningful, a mistake, a one-time thing, cheating. But then the law came and it canceled out all those words by giving a new one. And on top of that, what's the new word? Adultery. Now the words are not cheating and mistake. Now the word is, I have committed adultery. You see what the law does? It names our behaviors by attaching a name to it and by defining what the behavior truly means. This works in a variety of behavior that the law calls sin or law-breaking. I say, I actually kept what didn't belong to me, uh, but I think I had it coming. And the law says, that's called stealing. I say, man, I wish I had the income others had. And the law says, that's called covetousness. So through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Now, here's the next lesson. And this lesson we learn from the Old Testament. Israel's experience shows that the law might highlight our sin but it actually doesn't change our behavior romans three twenty says by the works of the law no human being will be justified the lesson of israel is quite simple they are no better and no worse than anyone else what happened to them would have happened to you if you had been in their place remember israel as they stood before god on mount sinai it was an incredible series of miracles that brought them to that place and the mountain trembled with smoke, and, and God spoke, and gave them the foundation of all the law he would give them later, the Ten Commandments. And then no sooner had the word been given that Israel said, and I'm quoting here from Deuteronomy 5.27, as they responded with bravado, all that the Lord our God will speak, we will do. <laughs> Sounds like exciting stuff, except that just a little while later they were building a calf idol and having an orgy. Oops. And that wasn't the last oops. In fact, the oops moments were not oops moments at all, were they? They were a habitual pattern of an ingrained rebellion. Remember Joshua? No sooner was his body dead in the ground when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The lesson is this. You'd have done the same thing. Simply hearing the law will not make you righteous. Indeed, the opposite is the case. The law seems to excite further rebellion. The lesson of Israel is that no amount of laws or commands will get it done. If you have trouble grasping that, you need to read the Old Testament and deeply learn its lessons. Israel's experience shows that the law might highlight our sin, but it doesn't change our behavior. But there's one more thing. Hearing that God is angry with our sin won't change anything. You know, we have spent a great deal of time, haven't we, discussing the issue of sin? We've talked about the wrath of God. We said that Paul has been declared uh, that all human beings are sinful before God. Gentiles are sinners. Jews are sinners. There's a judgment day coming. Before every one of us lies the great issues of heaven and hell and the horror that none is righteous and no, not one. Now listen, here's the startling truth. This was going to make you zip it. This is going to make you wholly accountable for God. This is what I promised you before when I said, you know, your jaw will drop. So get this. None of what Paul has taught us in the first three and a half chapters of Romans are going to change a thing. You can know this stuff. You can believe this stuff. You can think about this stuff. You can be scared by this stuff. You can even declare this stuff and become a preacher. And this will not change change your heart. I mean, you think about all of the preachers who have been de- declaring their their objection to sin who are found in sin themselves. You can go right on sinning till judgment day and be terrified by what you're doing, and you won't change. You're going to be just like Israel. Now, how hopeless does that sound? Do you know how, how dead we are to sin? And just like real death, it's an irreversible condition. I mean, that's what Ephesians 3 says. We were dead into sin. No turn of phrase, no warning changes anything. If you you took the time to learn the lesson from Israel, that's what you would come to know. Therefore, the answer to the greatest human dilemma, the greatest human crisis is this. Unless we are rescued by someone in such a way that gives life to the dead, we're simply on a collision course with an angry God. How many of you know that we've all kind of experienced that? When we were kids, our parents warned us, didn't they? And they said, Johnny, don't you do that. If you do, I'm going to tell your dad, and your dad's going to spank you. And you got afraid of that, and then you ended up doing it anyway. What did that teach you about yourself? The warnings came, but the warnings only highlighted what you were doing. See, now and only now are we ready for a story of the cross. Don't you see how badly we need a cross more than any other thing? Because the cross and only the cross can break through this murderous stubbornness in every single human heart. You know, I wonder at this point in time whether it's really not time for each one of us to kind of get ready for the story of the cross by doing a commitment prayer before God. Why don't you say these things to God? Why don't you say, Lord, I've heard about the cross and I've been warned about sin, but I find myself sinning nonetheless. Sometimes I wonder whether or not I've believed anything. Sometimes I find the, the, the desperation of my sin so great that I, I find myself wondering, how irreversible is my condition, O God? But in all of this, we need to remember and say to ourselves, Lord, you still do have the solution. Yes, we're supposed to be warned, but oh God, I need a change of heart. Would you change me, O God?
0: Thanks again, Dr. Newfeld, for the time we've spent today and the amazing insights we've had regarding the Old Testament. Uh, but we're making sort of a transition now, perhaps one that we've been sort of anxious for over the last few days. We're moving from sin, we're moving from the Old Testament to a, to a new message. And what's that new message going to be
1: about in the next couple of days? I think we've all heard uh, the phrase, you can't make this stuff up. Well, you really couldn't have made up this stuff about what God does in the cross. I mean, who would have conceived that God would find a way to make unrighteous sinners righteous in his sight? I mean, what happens after this? I mean, if you've kind of hung in there with me all this way, you're about to find that just like being in a dark, dark, dark place, suddenly a light gets struck and things look amazingly bright, amazingly glorious. That's the message of the cross.
0: You know, over the last few days, we've been talking a lot about sin, and it's it's been a bit heavy, and it's been a bit uh, complex, and sometimes difficult to wrap our heads around. Uh, but you know, it was interesting today as I as I as I saw you and I and I, I experienced your voice a little bit. There was an anticipation coming. They were moving past this to something new and something fresh and something
1: exciting. Yeah, it is so exciting. I mean, it's so exciting that we should be able to say with Paul in the end, I'm really not ashamed of this gospel. This is great stuff. This is freedom that everyone longs for. We ought to tell more.
0: Yep, and tomorrow we'll begin part one with Dr. John Newfeld on the wonderful cross. Join us, would you, on Back to the Bible Canada. I hope you've been blessed and enlightened by today's Bible teaching from Dr. John Newfeld. What an amazing insight the Old Testament gives us regarding the history of Israel specifically and the teachings of how this history and particularly with reference to the law applies to all believers, past, present, and future. Tune in tomorrow as Dr. Newfeld continues in Romans chapter three with the greatest message of all, the wonderful cross part one. This is definitely a life changer tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, we're privileged to be able to share God's Word without reservation every day right across the country. But we couldn't possibly do this work without your faithful and generous support. Have you been blessed and encouraged by what you've heard? Do you have a passion for seeing others' lives impacted by solid Bible teaching? then we'd love to invite you to prayerfully consider partnering with us on a monthly basis. Your gift offered every month makes the consistency of Bible teaching that we offer every day possible. You're a game changer when it comes to reaching more people with the good news of Jesus Christ in an increasingly disengaged generation. Together we can make a difference, transforming minds and lives through the power of the gospel. To become a part of this important group of ministry partners, call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.